Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Danny Nevins, and he has led three Jewish organizations since being ordained in 1994. He was senior rabbi of Adat Shalom in Farmington Hills, Michigan, and he served as dean at JTS Rabbinical School for 14 years. And in the summer of 2021, Rabbi Nevins began his current position as head of school at Golda Ak Academy in West Orange, New Jersey. He is also a scholar of modern Jewish law, and he has written many responsa on topics of modern Jewish life. You can find his publications at www.rabbinevins.com. And that again is www.rabbinevins.com. Hello, Rabbi Nevins. Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much, Yasmina. I've been looking forward to this. It really is our pleasure, and I'm excited to find out a little bit more about your story and how you um, really got involved in Jewish education. So let's dive right into the first question here. Will you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in Jewish education? Sure, I could talk about myself for years, but I'll say like this. I, I grew up in northern New Jersey. Um, uh, I was born in the 60s, and I our family was a fairly secular family. But in the years before my bar mitzvah, my parents had sort of a spiritual awakening. And each in their own way, they began exploring Judaism. My mother of blessed memory was an artist, and she loved Jewish music and artwork and and uh, calligraphy. She became a calligrapher of ketubot and cuisine and all that. My father was more interested in history and philosophy and um, genealogy. So that was a bit of their story. Um, I started going to Jewish summer camps like Camp Ramah and Jewish day schools. I went to uh, the first school, modern Orthodox school in New Jersey as a Mechina student or a beginning student. And I had a really great experience in both of those settings. I went off to Israel to study in a yeshiva called Yeshiva Tamiftar after high school. Now, where's that? Oh, sorry. Yeshiva Tamiftar was in Jerusalem. It was led by Rabbi Chaim Bravender. Okay. Um, at the end of my year, it merged with Rabbi Shlomo Riskin's uh, community and eventually moved out to Efrat. But back then it was in Jerusalem. Wow. And, you know, in college... Like many kids, I I explored a lot of things. I wound up studying modern um, history, Middle Eastern history at Harvard. And I was trying to figure out what do I want to do after college. I was focusing really on um, the history of the Jews in Israel during the mandatory period and of a peace organization called Breed Shalom. And I also was studying bioethics. Those were sort of my two foci. And... Yeah, and I loved both of them because they were both about ancient ideas in a very modern context. And I was trying to think, so how do I do that? How do I um, become an interpreter 
of wisdom literature from going back thousands of years in a way that's relevant and compelling uh, for today. So I guess you know, becoming a rabbi was very much about situating myself in that discourse and then also thinking about how do I make a difference in people's lives and help them develop as people and as Jews. And so I, I really thought of education as the core of my rabbit, both in terms of my learning and my teaching, and also helping other people in their learning and their teaching um, so that we could become an educational community. Oh, and I guess I should say after, after rabbinical school, I graduated JTS, and my first years, as you mentioned, were in a synagogue, a beautiful big synagogue in Michigan. But even there, I was involved um, in experiential education, taking the kids on trips to New York or to Israel. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Ramah camp in Canada, where our kids went, my own children went. Ah, where? I, where in Canada? It's um, it's north of Toronto. It's in an area called Muskoka. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know it? Okay, so there's a town called Utterson, Ontario, and that's where Camp Ramah in Canada is. Oh, and interesting. All of my kids went there from when they were little kindergartners and gone to being, you know, to being on staff. Very cool. Well, it's a beautiful <laughs> place. And I also taught in a day school in Michigan um, called Hillel Day School, which was a K-8 to um, Schechter at the time. And then I was part of a group that helped to found a new high school, which is now called the Franco Jewish Academy. And so I, day school has always been a big part of my life. Um, after the years in the pulpit, 13 years there, we came back to New York, where I became the dean of the rabbinical school and really um, spent most of my time training uh, clergy, not just rabbis, but also cantors, and actually not just Jews. We also had a... Um, a program that was founded by my friend Rabbi Michal Springer on Jewish pa- or on clinical pastoral education, and we wound up having students from many different faith traditions that came to do CPE with us. Wow, that's a very fascinating. What what was it like being the head of school at JTS versus being head of school at um, a typical Jewish day school? Right. Well, you know, JTS is an old institution going back about 130 years. And the rabbinical school, which I ran, was the original piece of it. But now JTS is larger. It has an undergraduate division and it has PhD and MA programs and in many different fields. And there's a chancellor who runs the entire institution. So I was running a part of it. And, um, you know, I was very focused on professional formation and education, which is different from what I'm doing now, where I'm teaching in a pre-K to 12 environment. Um, So over there at JTS, I was, you know, sort of the end of the educational process where people who are already adults, who are already learned and very committed to their Jewish uh, identity and, and knowledge, are now trying to figure out how to express that as professionals and how to deepen their knowledge. So it was really about encouraging people that they could do this um, and then helping them redirect when uh, they continue to grow and, and realize that they what they initially thought they were going to do was different. And I think creating a sense that the, the goal is not a specific job or a specific title, but the goal is to be a teacher of Torah and to be a, a caregiver to, to people who are in need um, and to be a model of integrity and, and faith, um, you know, that's, 
that's really what a rabbi should be learning to do. And so it was a great honor. And I, I got to ordain about 300 rabbis and about wow. 75 cantors. And they're all over the world now. So that that was really a great uh, joy for me. Well, that's really special. And I think that's important what you mentioned, the our goals as educators and striving to have a positive influence on other people Jewishly and to love Torah and and to also have that moral standard of how we're supposed to act, how we ought to act. I think that's um, really important that you mentioned that. Are there any educators that have inspired you or who that you particularly admire? So many. (laughs) (laughs) I've been really lucky with teachers and with uh, colleagues and friends and and students now. I mean, really hundreds and hundreds. uh, Pretty much all my friends are Jewish educators. So um, you're you're asking me to step into some sort of treacherous (laughs) territory. Um, But I I think I'll name a couple of people. among my teachers growing up, there was a rabbi who I wound up being in his synagogue named Andre Unger, who, you know, he was, he sort of survived the Holocaust in Hungary and came to England where he became a rabbi and then served around the world. And his first job was in South Africa in Port Elizabeth. And he immediately spoke out against apartheid and was deported from the country and, um, and eventually wound up in New Jersey where he was also a social activist. Um, he did march, you know, during the civil rights era down in Alabama. And he um, he was a person who who just died recently, but he um, he was a humanist. You know, he he had a very broad idea of of religion and Judaism's contributions to the world. And um, I think he he made me feel that you could be devoted to your own people. He was a big social uh, Soviet Jewry activist and got our family to go to Russia and uh, visit refuseniks and that kind of thing. And he was a Zionist, but he was also very much compassionate and committed to the well-being of other people and very non-judgmental. So, um, so he was a great role model for me. Uh, among my contemporaries, I want to mention actually somebody who's been on your show, um, Rabbi Judd Kruger-Levingston, uh, <laughs> who is in Philadelphia and at Barrick Academy. And Judd is just, I think he stands for me for moral education. You know, he, um, he, he takes children and their intellectual and moral development very seriously. He, yes. I don't think he, he feels insecure. He doesn't feel like he needs to prove what he knows and why he's better or, or more wiser than they are. I think actually for Judd, uh, being an educator is all about eliciting curiosity and growing sure. command. So uh, that's somebody I really admire. And who else did I want to mention? Um, there's a professor emerita JTS named Carol Engel. And um, when I was considering going into day school education, I consulted with her and I read one of her books, which was, a, she's also a teacher of Judd's and a teacher in moral education, but I read another book of hers about new teachers and how important it is to provide support and encouragement for what's a really hard job to be an educator. It's true. <laughs> so, and Carol has been that for me and um, really encouraged me to go into this field and not to feel overwhelmed by how much I have to learn. 
It's a, yeah, I love that you mentioned that this last part about how much you have to learn. I, I remember hearing something, the more you learn, right, the more you realize there's still so much you don't know. Right. And as educators, we have to be okay with admitting that we don't know everything. You know, there's this paradox that Moses is called Anav Mikol Adam, the most humble of all people. And the rabbis ask, well, how could that be? I mean, he... The Torah itself says that he spoke directly with God like no one else had done. So how could he be humble? He knew more and he knew that he knew more than other people. Um, But they say, well, the thing is this, that once you get a glimpse of eternity, uh, it puts you in perspective of uh, your own limitations. (laughs) And other people who haven't been able to see, you know, how much there is to know, can be excused for sort of starting to think that they really have mastered things when, in fact, they're only beginning. That's so true. How do you talk about God and how might this differ with the various age groups that you work with? Well, I think the only honest way to speak about God is to speak from your own heart and your own experience. Um, Martin Buber once said, you can't say anything true about God You can only speak truthfully to God, like with the wholeness of your being, because the minute you start describing God, you turn God into an object, you know, sort of a subject. And um, and once you do that, you lose the essence of God, which is the being unconfined, at least in Jewish terms, that God has no beginning or ending. As we say in Adon Alam. And so um, so I. I think with little children, uh, I think Harold Schulweis once said, you know, when a child asked him, where is God? Harold Schulweis, if I remember the story correctly, said, where is love? And the child, without missing a beat, pointed at their heart. And Mm. and Schulweis said, that's where God is, too. And But it was important to sort of reframe God, not as an object or as a person um, in a place, but really God is a... um, a powerful and deep experience that can be found anywhere um, that, uh, you know, the rabbis say in, in the Midrash that God is not in the world. The world is in God. And um, that's why we call God Hamakom, the place, um, because the world exists within the reality of God. So I, I think it's important to move away from thinking of God as this persona on in a location, in a place called heaven, and to think instead of God as the reality within which we exist. Um, In terms of older students, I think it's important to admit also to doubt, um, because as much as it's nice to say, oh, God is in your heart, do you feel love? Is love real? Then then God is real. Um, The truth is that older children, and sometimes even younger children, have experienced things in the world. They've seen things that don't make sense. They've experienced suffering. They've experienced loss. Um, they've experienced um, a different kind of loss, the, the loss of confidence, the, the loss of um, happiness that comes with depression and anxiety. And so it's not enough to just say to older people, whether they're kids or adults, that just don't just have pure faith I've got perfect faith. That's an aspiration, but it's not really something that anyone honestly can claim to have or to always have. And so I think 
sharing that and and then saying that we speak of God starting by speaking of ourself and our own experience uh, in the world. When is it that we feel most support, most inspiration, most love? And that's when we find God. You know, um, just recently I was at the, toward the end of Bereshit, when we were reading about how how Jacob heard that Joseph was still alive. And it's his show. He, he sort of came back to life. And the rabbis say that um, all the years that he thought Joseph had died, God had departed from him right. when he was in that sorrow, you know. And yet when, when he felt like Joseph was alive, God's presence returned to him. And it's like, you can't experience God except from simcha, from, from a sense of joy or happiness in the world. And so, um, you know, if, if you feel that God is absent, it's not so much that God is absent as much as um, you may be in a state where you can't feel that. And so a lot of faith is really about cultivating one's own sense of hope and purpose and joy. And if you do those things, then you can feel the divine presence as well. How or what do you think would be the best way to model that for our students? Because we probably sometimes have our own struggles. And how do we still show our students that it, that it's okay, even if they are struggling with maybe their connection to God? You know, we have a long tradition in Judaism of sometimes answering a question with a song, you know, with a nikun that doesn't have words. And one of the um, origin stories I heard about the nikun um, was that when when Moshe Rabbeinu, that famous midrash that he's talking to God and, you know, is wondering what will happen to this Torah, and God says, well, there's going to be this guy, Akiva ben Yosef, and he's going to be so good that he can interpret even the little crowns on the Torah. That's why I have to write them. And Moshe says, oh, let me see him. And he sees that Akiva is truly amazing. And, um, and then he asked God what happened to Akiva, and God shows him how um, he was martyred, having his skin scraped from, from him while he was alive. And, and Moshe says, you know, um, this is his Torah, and this is his reward. And um, according to the Midrash, God says, um, be silent. You know, this is what I've decided to do. Mm. And um, the rabbis said that at the moment that God told Moshe to be silent, that he couldn't understand, Moshe was silent, but there was a hole that opened in his soul, a hole of doubt, um, because how could this be? And uh, I heard that the nigun, maybe this was a Rabbi Nachman story, that the nigun came to fill that void um, of doubt, you know, that comes from the disconnect between the world as we wish it would be in the world as we find it. Um, and so I think speaking to kids about your doubts and about your experience of absence, of Hester Panim, of divine absence, is very important because otherwise they'll think um, either that they have to be perfect in their faith and any doubt makes them a bad person, God forbid, or they'll feel that I'll never have that, so why even bother? You know, and um, and I, I think that's not a healthy model to set before our kids. I can definitely agree with that for sure. Now, education or chinuch in Hebrew, it can be a little bit of an amorphous term. Mm -hmm. How would you define education? 
So chinuch, um, which is a beautiful Hebrew word, you know, you've got the connection to Hanukkah, which is a dedication. Um, so chinuch um, is actually preparing oneself to be dedicated um, to a special purpose. And um, and so that, that certainly is one element of it. Um, I don't know. I, I think that uh, there, there's a character in the Bible named Hanukkah, um, who's sort of this mysterious character. It says that he walked with God and was no more right. because God took him. Right? <laughs> you know, And so, um, you know, one way that you could think of education is, um, is walking with God, you know, that it's uh, Jewish education anyway, is about trying to have an intention, you know, because if you're learning Spanish or German or, Japanese or any other <laughs> language or any skill, physics or other type of math or history or whatever you're learning, you can be learning it simply as a personal um, challenge. But Jewish education, uh, you can do it that way. You have to learn the tables of the Hebrew, Hebrew verbs, or you could be learning vocabulary or the chapters of the Mishnah or something. But ultimately, the purpose is to be learning um, to be together with God and to have a sense that your life can have sanctity. It can, when you say, Asher that our lives could become sacred through what we've learned. Um, they become meaningful and, um, and that they can allow us to build community. So we're not on a solitary journey. Education, Jewish education should never be solitary. It should always be about um, a community of learners who are working together. That's why Chavruta is such a big part of traditional Jewish education of learning in group. Um, and frankly, not only in, with a partner, but then coming back to the larger group and sharing what you've learned. It's the, the old parent share, but it's um, it differentiates Jewish learning from a more secular type of learning where the model might be, you know, the solitary a student in their carol in the library, um, and it's much more an interactive experience. I know. I definitely learn much better when I am uh, bouncing ideas off of uh, my husband or when I am talking with my kids and we're reading a, the Parsha for the week or something like that and going through and they, they have their questions that they ask. Um, so it's uh, it's. Really amazing the way Hashem built in the our, the way we're meant to learn. Mm, nice. Very nice. <laughs> Do you see that way of learning really helps to inspire um, students to really want to continue to love learning and to want to continue to be Jewish? Or have you found methods or tips that have worked for you? Um. Here's the challenge that, you know, you can never set aside your ego entirely. And um, finding a good chavruta is challenging because um, often there's an imbalance. You know, one person is better at one type of skill or or knows more of the background. Um, sometimes you really find that perfect pairing where they complement each other. And one person has, let's say, better vocabulary skills and the other knows more of the contextual history and, and they can really inform each other and just be so grateful for one another. But sometimes it's hard, you know, with Chavruta 
they say finding a good chavrut is like trying to find a good spouse. You know, it's <laughs> it's the, the task of a lifetime. And um, and I'll admit that, especially in my younger years, when I was like a yeshiva student in Jerusalem, um, I started to think of myself as being like such a big deal, you know, that I I really became uh, chutzpahdik, you know, and I became, I think, a bit arrogant in my learning. And I thought, well, it's Torah Lishma, there are no grades, so there can't be anything wrong. But the truth is, I I realized later that I um, <coughs> my motivations, you know, were to be the best at something, at Talmud or whatever. And I remember at the time reading one of, uh, I think the last book that that um, Abram Joshua Heschel wrote, which was called A Passion for Truth. And it was a story really about the impact on his life of the Baal Shem Tov and the Kutzker Rebbe. And the Kutzker was ferocious, you know, and he saw hypocrisy wherever he looked. Mm-hmm. And I began to see that in myself too. And so I I think sometimes when we put people together in Chavruta, we need to also provide them with... Um, a sense of the ethic of that relationship and um, and the love that can go into that relationship and not to make them feel like their goal is to, you know, like to come up with the insights that eluded their partners so that they can be worthy. Um, you know, the, the activity itself is worthy. I definitely can hear um, how sometimes that could be a, a bit of a challenge, but then if on the other hand of that, on the other side of that, if as people are learning, if they realize it's okay that you may have different strengths than whoever you're learning with, and that that is all okay, and we all are going to learn at our own level and our own time, and and that's why we're supposed to re- we review the Torah, we repeat it every year because maybe you didn't get something out of it yeah. the year before, but maybe you got something completely different because now you you were supposed to continue growing and learning and and bettering ourselves. It's beautifully said, yes, me. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you found to be the biggest challenge that you faced as an educator? No. Um... It's the same with teaching and the same with parenting. Hard to know what's sinking in, you know, like what what this means to the other person, to the to the students, especially when you've got a big room of teenagers. And, you know, once in a while you have these golden moments when they really show their excitement, enthusiasm, and appreciation. But often they hide those things from each other, from themselves, and from you. And um and you wonder, you know, uh do, do they think I'm wasting their time? Mm. Um, and I think it's especially true with um, tefillah education, with prayer education, because, um, you know, to really dive in, you have to make yourself vulnerable. And um, that's not something that that any of us really likes to do, and um, certainly not teenagers. And so um, you, you find yourself often as an educator shushing people, trying to get them to open their sidur, to stop talking, to pay attention. And, you know, all of those, those controlling instincts are kind of um, the opposite of what you're trying to do. It's true. And trying to get people to pray. So it's a real dilemma, isn't it? Um, how, and if you just sort of go into a beatific, you know, like space where you're off there praying beautifully and, um, and you're hoping that they'll see you and want to be like you, 
Well, maybe, but um, <laughs> chances are they'll be like, oh, he's off in his own world. You know, we don't have to pay attention to him or, uh-huh. you know, so it's hard. And, and you know, I, I played some music. I played drums and um, I sometimes think, well, if we just put good music in front of people that come along. But um, a teenager said to me recently, I asked them how they liked the service I had done when I was drumming and it was on guitar. And she said to me, well, you sure look like you were having fun <laughs> in that kind of cutting way that only a teenager could do. And, um, and I realized you can't really perform spirituality for other people. You know, you, I mean, you, you can, but, but that's not going to suffice. They need to feel hungry for it themselves. And um, so I don't, I don't know. There's again, the Kutzke Rebbe had that great thing about, um, avecha, put these words on your heart. He says, why doesn't they put them in your heart? Well, because the heart is usually closed. But if you keep putting the words there, maybe at some point they'll, it'll open and they'll come inside. So I don't lose hope, but I, I realize that it's a hard thing we're doing. It is hard, but, but I feel like it's maybe ties into what you mentioned before about um, Lishma and Lo Lishma is, you know, as we're, educating and we're, we're teaching and we're hoping that every little thing that we're, we're creating those sparks and leaving the breadcrumbs and mm-hmm. that even if our students are doing things, they're starting somewhere, they might not have everything figured out, but eventually, okay, we hope that they'll get to the point where they're going to have that spark that's just going to be deep within them that's going to continue to be lit and that they'll realize that there's something special there and want to continue and and continue to build that up and keep that fire burning very nice Mm -hmm. how do you stay motivated well you know it's been especially hard this year for me to start during covid because so much of my energy is is on keeping the school safe the way i stay motivated is um by trying to find opportunities to to hear and and help students find their voice. So we've been having board meetings and I've been inviting students to give the Dvar Torah. And part of the deal is that they work with me on it, you know? And so I guess kind of like a rabbi in a shul with the bar mitzvah kid, but, um, but these are high school students typically. And um, I try to encourage them to pursue uh, topics that are of personal importance to them and not to feel like they have to only quote Rashi and other great rabbis, but to actually um, reflect on how this is affecting them. So, you know, just recently, um, one of our 10th graders, she was going to speak about Parshat Vayigash and um, she had just started a women's empowerment club in our school. And what she really was experiencing was something I hadn't experienced in Vayikash, maybe because I'm a man. Um, you've got this beautiful reconciliation between the brothers, uh, Joseph and Judah, Yehuda, which is lovely. And eventually they, all the other brothers come into the room and they're all hugging and crying and making plans. And then we're going to get dad and we're going to bring everybody down. It's all going to be great. And you think about it, like, there isn't one woman's voice in that whole Parsha. And yet the women are going to get relocated, you know, by the men. Um, They're going to leave their land. They're going to come to Egypt. They're going to experience a lot of suffering in Egypt as women, as mothers. 
and um and where was their voice in that and um and so i she she saw something that i encouraged her to express strongly you know and um and then to connect it to her own experience at our school and i think that's what what keeps me motivated is realizing that while i do have some knowledge that others don't um a lot of my job is really helping people find their voice in torah and um and then you know empowering those kids to do um important work and to get out of the way <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's important yeah for sure <laughs> sometimes we get ourselves in the way and uh um we want things to be just so and we really want this to stick with them and that's right. sometimes it's something else that we taught them that sticks and that's okay <laughs> for sure and I love that you said um, giving them their own voice in, in Torah. I think that's um, really important. And so that kind of ties in with this next question. Um, how can we help our students build a strong Torah foundation? I think you begin by saying that, you know, Torah isn't just the fine print in the back of these huge books. Um, Torah is it's learned conversation um, yearning conversation, curious conversation about things that matter, um, about being joining a conversation with our ancestors. Um, so I think you got to help them understand what the purpose of the thing is. Um, and then I do believe that you you need to get them a, a sense of bequeath of sort of a survey that, you know, what is in the Tanakh? You know, what is in the Talmud? When you hear these words, um, you hear names like Rashi or Rambam, where do these people come from? You know, what motivated them? And I th- because none of us will ever know all of it, um, I think giving them some sort of context so that when they begin to um, connect to something, they'll have a sense of what am I, where is this from? You know, I, it's very confusing. If you take a page of Talmud, Scattered throughout that Talmud, there'll be verses from all around the Bible. There'll be quotes from Mishnah and Brighton and Tosefta and other early Tanaitic materials. There'll be statements in Hebrew, statements in Aramaic, statements from Israel, statements from Babylonia, statements from earlier generations and later generations and later still, um, and a lot of anonymous statements that you almost don't even notice until someone points out that, hey, look, someone is stitching all this together in a specific form, um, the stam, we call them, the editor. And um, so I think it's important for the students to begin to unravel those pieces so they can see the layers in this text that they're, they're learning. Otherwise, they'll think that everybody's, you know, um, speaking at the same time, and they won't be able to understand what their own voice can be because Torah is without context. And I know that there is, that is a style of learning Torah, sort of like this, uh, it's like a mythological idea that everybody's in the room at the same time and maybe up in heaven in Yeshiva Shalmala, you know, that's the way it is. But um, down here in Yeshiva Shalmata in the, this terrestrial Torah that we've got, we actually are living in specific places in specific languages and relationships and 
contexts and influences, and those all matter. So, um, so I think for a true foundation, for a Torah emet, for a true Torah, you want people to understand, you know, the impact of of history on their learning. Anyway, I know I'm sounding like a conservative rabbi and guilty. <laughs> <laughs> So when would you say is um, the earliest, I guess, to really build, start building that foundation? Right. So, I mean, look, a, a lot of early childhood education is about, um, it's about the Chagim. It's about um, Shabbat and Parshat Shavua. It's about Tefillot. Um, so I think you can just subtly say, well, this tefillah we're about to sing, matovu, let's say, um, it actually comes from the Torah. And it, these words were first said by somebody who wasn't even Jewish or Israelite, Balaam, wasn't even our friend, you know, and, um, and yet here it is. It, it's the most beautiful way to start our prayer. It's what we say when we walk into our synagogue and, um, and to get them to think a little bit about the sources of spirituality, that they're not always um, from the places you might expect it. Sometimes it's the conversation you have in the supermarket with somebody or um, who may not be Jewish that will actually make you feel that you're, you're connecting to God and to spiritual life. So I, I think you can start to do that by saying, you know, this came from somewhere and we know where. Um, and then, to add to that, you know, and, um, you know, kids, they hear these agadot about Avram Avinu and the fiery furnace and that kind of thing. And, you know, I think it's okay at an early age to say, well, you know, that story is a great story. It, it is not in the Torah. Um, that was a story that the rabbis told us. Right. And, um, you know, the rabbis knew a lot and they, they found hints in the Torah and then they filled it out. And we call that Midrash. And um, so it's important to remember what's in the Torah and what's in the Midrash. And it's not the same, but but they are part of the same conversation and they, they go together. I think if you can teach kids that, then that sort of opens up a space for their own voice to become part of the discussion too. It doesn't feel like everything has been codified, you know, but there's uh, this open canon where their voices are also um, being added. I like that, giving them a chance to kind of learn Torah, make it their own, and 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 build on that connection for sure. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to new Jewish educators who are just beginning their journey? Well, um, first of all, learn as much as you can possibly learn. <laughs> Stay curious, <laughs> um, but but. Um, I know there's always uh, there are always opportunities to start teaching right away, and you know some of them will be as camp counselors or Hebrew school teachers or bar mitzvah tutors, and, and that's good. You, you need to teach in order to learn, um, but don't go for shortcuts. Don't say, "Well, I've only you know I can just learn for a few weeks and then I'm ready to go." Because the truth is, I think with it's true with every educator, not just in Judaism, but you start to run dry after a while, you know, if you're not also refreshing. It's and true. Um, so, you know, it, 
we talk about professional development PD and, and that's good, but often it's episodic, it's short, it's a conference, it's whatever. And so I think it's important to have a study practice um, that it could be a chavruta that you keep, but to always be sort of in a project where you're learning through a safer or you're working on an article or, or you're enrolling in a course or you're pursuing another degree or, or whatever it is, but to set sort of learning goals for yourself um, and not only think about your teaching goals because, um, you know, students can tell if you're still curious, if you're still learning, um, it makes a difference. And so I, I think that's my advice. Um, just keep going deeper and, and keep learning more. And I will say, you know, I've been a rabbi now for about 30 years. Um, well, not quite 30 years, but say 27 years. And, um, and there, there are basic things that I'm still learning, basic things, things that I'd probably be embarrassed to admit, but I'm going to say that up front that, um, that, do not feel that you have an obligation to put on airs that you know it all because you don't. And the sooner you get uh, to that point that you can admit that to a student, um, the more you will empower them to admit what they need to learn and to help them share in the, the joy of discovery of, of learning something new. It, isn't that the sweetest part of education? So I guess, you know, cultivate that, that sense of the excitement of discovery and in yourself, and you'll also cultivate it in your students. Well, I agree with that 100%. Thank you. Um, well, what do you think that successful Jewish education will look like in the future? Asha, I, I just don't know what the future is going to look like. You know, one has to be um, hopeful. Um, but, you know, there, there are difficult challenges coming upon us. You know, I think we've we've learned from the pandemic that um, when you thought you knew what your challenges were, something comes out of right field and boom, really slams your heart. And that's true. Um, and know, I'm home with my kids. I'm not even in the classroom anymore, but it's, uh, I, I can only imagine. And I think, you know, the climate crisis is becoming more and more urgent and, um, and, you know, some of our old challenges are very much with us, whether it's, anti-Semitism and other types of bigotry that, that we face in the world and in ourselves, frankly. Um, and, um, and even the challenges of peoplehood, of, of having a state, such a blessing, um, such a miracle really in our life. Um, and yet challenging and, and hard for people outside to appreciate as much as the folks on the inside do. Um, and sometimes hard for people on the inside to realize what impact um, their decisions have on those of us on the outside, you know, so it's, it's hard to sort of stay connected. Um, And so I think a successful Jewish education in the future will be responsive to historic developments. Um, We'll be sort of optimistic and not easily dissuaded, but, um, but we'll also, you know, um, build connections between people. Um, I think, you know, the Jewish community is sort of drifting further apart. You know, I sometimes see people in sort of the um, the much more assimilated, just Jewish category, not even knowing what they're missing. And I sometimes see people who are very much in the segregated Jewish world, you know, 
not realizing that there is value and and wisdom and and kindness and um, and uh, holiness uh, outside of of you know the sort of narrow confines of the from world. And um, I guess for me, I'd like Jewish educators to be um, connective tissue, you know, sort of bringing these many different people together so that we can all learn deeper Torah and, um, and honor the one God who we share, you know, so uh, we need each other for that. We do. And, and like you mentioned, we ought to learn the wisdom from the other nations too. And Mm -hmm. it's, definitely important. Well, Rabbi Danny, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast this evening. Really uh, appreciated your, you taking the time. I learned a lot from you in this talk, and I'm going to look into more of your writings and look forward to being able to continue this conversation in the future. Well, thank you so much, Yasmina. I really enjoyed the conversation too. And I look forward to hearing the podcast of other Jewish educators on your wonderful site. That sounds great. And uh, and all the best. And-